Alright, a verse is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the enemy, the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Thank you very much, Becca. It's the Word of God. For months now, we've been in a series on the armor of God, which Becca just read from us from Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 18. The book of Ephesians is a, is a book that reminds us of the gospel and teaches us how to live in the gospel. And finally, to be prepared for attacks that look to keep us from doing just that. We are told to put on the whole armor of God. I sure hope that you've noticed by now that the armor, pieces of the armor are interconnected. You don't get one without, it, without the other. For instance, you don't get the breastplate of righteousness if you don't have the belt of truth. You don't have the belt of truth unless you have God's word, the sword of the Spirit. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. It is impossible to please God without the shield of faith. And salvation and the hope of salvation comes from faith. Every week during this message, these messages, my goal has been to teach you, that, um, to, not just to teach you the different pieces of the armor, but their uses, how you can live them, how you can put them on yourself. And this is something not just for us to say, well, that's a really interesting pastor taste and really cool stuff with the different armor, the Roman armor, but I want you to live it. And I was, it's interesting, you know, as soon as you start talking about the armor of God, um, I just told my wife this, I mean, this last week, that um, I've been having spirit, some spiritual warfare going on, I mean, which you should expect, right? This is the kind of way it was happening for me this last week, is I would have these dreams. Now, I'm not arguing with my wife, I'm not arguing with people, but I'm having these dreams where I'm having screaming arguments. And I'm being filled with fear, I'm being filled with hopelessness, and I wake up, and I'm like... This isn't true. I need to put on the belt of truth. Amen. Amen. I need to put on the breastplate of righteousness that says I should not treat my wife or my or people in my church because of a stupid dream I have. I, I said I have the hope of salvation upon my head. My feet are ready to preach the gospel. And I'm not going to let this paralyze me. I have my shield of faith and I have the sword of the spirit at my side. The armor of God is useful when we use it. When you wake up, I assume you get dressed. Now, by looking out here, I don't see anybody in their pajamas, so that's good. 
It's funny, I remember I at the church one time, our pastor had, had kind of jokingly talked about um, coming next week in your pajamas so that, you know, we don't look on the outward appearance. And there was somebody in our congregation, I told my pastor afterwards, you don't, you don't have to tell Bill, his name wasn't Bill, but I don't want Anyway, um, you don't have to tell Bill because Bill was in his uh, was in his pajama bottoms that had like the Simpsons characters on it. It's great. So I see all of you are dressed. You're all in your church clothes, but do you put on the armor as well? Every day we need to put on the armor. A soldier does not know when he'll be called to action. He needs to put or she needs to put on the armor. We've been talking about spiritual warfare. Second Corinthians two eleven. In order that Satan may not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. That verse always gives me pause because I wonder, it's like, are we unaware of his schemes? When we think of spiritual warfare, most of our ideas come really, unfortunately, from Hollywood. You know, the crab walking, twisting your head 360 degrees, uh, frothing at the mouth, and split pea soup, and all, all that stuff. That's the dramatic stuff. There is dramatic stuff when we talk about possession, when we talk about spiritual warfare. For instance, the man who's possessed by a legion of demons comes to mind. Biblically, these are not the only ways Satan attacks. In fact, the most devastating attacks of the devil do not come in the dramatic forms. They come in the most subtle forms. They come in the form of attacking God's word. One of the most significant, or what Satan thought, let me rephrase that, what Satan thought was going to be his most significant victory over God, over Christ, the crucifixion, that happened, I mentioned during, when we were doing communion, after Jesus says, the one I give the morsel to is the one who betrayed me, it then says, Satan entered Judas. It's an interesting way of saying things, it's not interesting, it's enlightening, and it's actually it's something that we should be thinking about because Satan, Judas does not froth at the mouth. He does not manifest, but he's possessed by Satan himself. Satan does not force him to do things he's not otherwise inclined to do. It's kind of like fuel to the fire of what you've already let into your life. That's what happens with Judas. When we are ignorant of these things, when we think, oh, I don't have to worry about spiritual warfare until somebody's at, at the altar frothing at the mouth, we will miss so much of the attacks of the devil on us. And one of the primary ways he attacks is on God's word. This is a great bit of a review for my sermon on the belt of truth. But like I said before, these are interconnected. Attacks on the truth are the attacks on God's word. Satan has been attacking God's word from the beginning. We know this, Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more craftier than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, and you will find those words parroted, parroted today. Did God really say that? You're taking that out of context. How about that? Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? This is an attack. This has attack has been far more devastating than any other attack in all of history to our species. This happened, this resulted in the fall of humanity. Matthew 16, 23. Jesus calls Peter Satan. He calls him Satan because Peter is doing the job of Satan. In 1623, but he turned to Peter. He just told Peter, he just told the disciples about how he would suffer in Jerusalem for their sake, for the sake of the world. He would suffer, die on a cross, and Peter told him, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus responds to him, but he turned to Peter, he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. 
For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. A person is no more like Satan than when they question, when they deny God's very words, which is unfortunately what Peter was doing. The most prolonged attack on Christ was his temptation in the desert. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, the temptation of Christ. And do you know what Satan does in the desert when he's tempting Christ? He twists the scripture. He attacks the sword. Satan is afraid of the sword. He is afraid of the sword because the sword cuts through the lies. It cuts through the deception. We are done with the defensive portions of the armor. Now it's time to talk about the offensive um, the offensive tools that God gives us, the offensive weapons. The Bible tells us that the sword is the sword the, that the sword is the sword of the Spirit, it is the Word of God. The sword um, that they would have seen day after day is what we know today as the gladius. The historian Richard A. Gabriel and Karen Mertz have written that it killed more soldiers than any other weapon in history until the invention of the gun. So at this time, I would like to call out, for the final time, Rocky the Roman. <laughs> Maybe it won't be the final time, I don't know. <laughs> Look at this, get a picture now, people. <laughs> Legionari, unsheath your sword. Thank you. So, Rocky, that may seem awkward. That's exactly how they unsheathed their swords um, in the time of Rome and the time of the Legion, uh, the time of the Legionaries. The reason why was to be as compact as possible because the because interaction between the sword and the scutum, the shield was exactly their fighting method. So when you are packed together with one another in their manipul formation, so once again, they were not in phalanxes, that was the Greeks, the Romans was manipul. Um, they were shoulder to shoulder. They had to compactly um, draw their sword. It is in Rocky's right hand, also after, because apparently the Romans didn't believe in left-handed people, so if you're left-handed, sorry. In fact, if you were left-handed and you were, you were practicing fencing or practicing your sword work, they would tie your left arm against the rest of your body so you couldn't use it because there was no left-handed people in the Legion. So they would have to learn how to fight with their right, whether they liked it or not, because it was uniformity that made the big difference. Now... You notice it's a sword. The main weapon of the Roman legionari was a sword. And this, might, this is actually unique. Because most cultures around the world, despite even regions, Japan, China, Europe, what have you, they had a pole arm or a spear. I don't have a spear today. I have my shepherd's crook because I don't own a spear. Um, in fact, before a certain time in, uh, in um, Roman history, before the... Uh, Marian reforms, the uh, soldiers wouldn't carry a sword, they would carry a sword, they'd carry a spear called the Hasta, and they'd be known as uh, Hastians, um, because they would fight with that. Before I get into that, this sword right here has been known, has been called the most important sword in all of history. I just read to you um, a quote from two historians who said it killed more people until the gun was developed. So it's been known as kind of the most important sword in history. It's not the most fancy sword. I mean, the katana, for instance, it's longer. Here, show it here. 
It's longer. It's made from a higher quality steel, not this one. This one's a display piece. If we joust, if we adjust, if we fence, he'd probably break right through it. Um, it was made by folded steel. A lot of people see that. And, and, and legitimately, if it was just sword against sword, this one has it all over the Gladius. But the Gladius became much more effective. It's, it's much more known historically. It, this might give me room, but... There's something, there's an advantage that Rocky has over the Gladius. We'll talk about that in a second. Probably the most fancy sword, in my opinion, is the Chinese hook swords. They are like, I don't know, six weapons in one? You know, you'd think they'd be like the Swiss Army hook swords, right? Um, Armand Dorian, ER physician, when he saw these in work, he called it a surgical ballet. Um, good thing nobody, I see why nobody's sitting in the <laughs> You can actually hook these together, and I'm not going to do this because I might drop them and get somebody with this. And uh, much more fancy than the Gladius, but the Gladius, I would still maintain, is still the most effective sword in history, the most important sword in history. It affords the Empire of Rome. Before the Roman soldiers, right? Before the Marian reforms, with the Hastas and stuff, they were just like any other army. But once they got standardized with the Gladius and the Stukum, which is the shield, um, that, that's when they started making headway. And here's the thing, is that they were made to operate in concert with each other. Which really plays into what I was talking about, how it's the armor of God, not the pieces of the armor of God. We put on the whole armor of God because it all works together, including the sword of the Spirit and our faith. So... As a physical example, so once again, it's my shepherd's crook, but I'm going to use it like a spear. This is how it's kind of used if you want to move out a little bit here. So most soldiers, most armies, they have a spear. So you have to imagine this is a spear instead of a shepherd's crook. And they would come at the enemy. Most of them were not very well trained, by the way. That's one of the misconceptions in history, is that all soldiers were you know, expertly trained. They were there to make war. Most of the time, they were farmers. They were people constricted into a, constricted into an army. And they would run at the enemy with a spear. And here's what would happen with the Roman legionari. Let's hope this works out well. <laughs> they come. How do you see this? I've overextended myself. He, that allows him to get it nice and close with his gladius. The gladius is a thrusting weapon. If you want to face the congregation there, Rocky, and just kind of like scrunch up so they can see... Put it nice in front of you. Put your sword right at the front. You can't get to him, right? The shield covers most of everything that could possibly hurt, but he can hit you with that little sword. Interesting fact. Three inches of penetration is all it takes to take a human life anywhere in the chest cavity. So the Romans, they built their, they built their thing about the least amount of energy as possible the amount of, with the maximum amount of casualties so they're looking only to get that three inches. Now in the middle of battle, a person doesn't even know they're dead until they bleed out. But the Romans didn't care. They were there to win wars. They were there to conquer. Well, thank you very much, Rocky. Thank you. Maybe he'll make a return. I don't know when. I talk about how to use the gladius. It's a quick stabbing weapon. A larger, a longer weapon could get mucked up in an enemy's clothes, armor, or what have you. The small gladius was able to puncture and, and, then, and then to leave. 
Paul the Apostle was a Roman citizen. He knew much, much about Roman culture and everything. When he's writing to the Ephesians who are Romans, he's speaking their language. And he says, the sword is the sword of the Spirit. It is the Word of God. This is not the first time the Word of God has been compared to a sword. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is described with having a sword that comes out of his mouth. And our primary scripture for today, if you want to pull this up, from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. My third slide okay. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 gives us three aspects of the sword that we are going to look at this morning. One, it's living and active. Two, it penetrates. And three, it judges. So, when I was in high school, and this is not, teenagers just don't listen to me here. Um, when I was in high school, um, instead of doing my homework and study hall, I read the classics. The classics, talking about the Greek classics, as in um, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the histories of Herodotus. I say don't listen to me here because I didn't have the best grade point average because I wasn't doing my homework and study hall. I read other things that are not considered classics, but the like, plays of Shakespeare. These are all interesting, but they are not active, they are dead. They were written at a time and a place, but I don't suggest you live your life based solely on them. Young people, especially Romeo and Juliet, do not suggest you live your life. <laughs> the claim of scripture is that it is living and active. It is as relevant today as when it was written. Amen. It crosses time, culture, and shows us what is right and wrong, righteous and unrighteous. People have their opinion, but the word of God stands true. The codes of Bushido and chivalry have no hold on you today, but every jot, every tittle of the word of God will remain until after the stars themselves wink out. It is a living text. It is a living, it is a living text, even though it is not considered a living document. A living document, also known as an evergreen document, or a dynamic document, is a, is a document that is continually edited and updated, updated. An example of a living document is our articles that are on Wikipedia, that online encyclopedia that everyone likes to use in, in, uh, in their research papers. It permits anyone to freely edit the article as a contrast to a dead or static document, such as a single article of a single edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, which is un unable to be edited, or the U.S. Constitution, although it is somewhat living because it can be amended. This doesn't describe, nor should it describe, our Bibles. We do not get to add and take away from the Scriptures. In fact, there's very, very serious things that would happen to a person who does this. But the Bible still says it is living and active. Scripture is living is a living is a living text nonetheless. The scripture itself may not may never be taken away or anything or anything added to it. But what it does is it adds to you and it takes away from you. It edits you to be more and more of the image of God's Son Jesus Christ. It is making you an evergreen and dynamic individual. It is an active text. 
Do not, in James 1.22, do not, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Your Bible is an active text. I can read Macbeth and never put any of it into practice. Who cares? But if you read the Bible and you don't do what it says, you are deceived. The sword is not content in only being admired. It needs to be put in use. The scripture is constantly attacked for this reason above all. It constantly attacks. Becca, would you mind giving me the uh, sword, the gladius that's in there? It constantly attacks. Make no mistake, if we can learn anything from other Western nations, it's this. That the days of being able to openly, openly function, express, participate in what the Bible says as our belief is coming to an end. Ireland, for instance, a man was sitting on a street corner reading the Bible, no commentary. He was put in jail. James Coates, over in Canada, opened up his church against government regulations. He's sitting in jail right now. The scripture itself, it's active. It demands a response from us. No wonder people are so furious with it. Because no matter how much you try to deny it, it's still there. You can say, oh, there's all these different circumstances, but it still says, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not bear false witness. It is, a, it is a sword that is not content to stay in the scabbard, no matter how much an individual might want it to. The gladius was a double-edged sword, but it was mainly, but instead of hacking and fat, um, uh, slashing, it was mainly used for thrusting. It penetrates. Paul, a Roman citizen, knows what he's talking about here. He and his listeners have seen gladiuses day by day. They know how they are used. While they can hack and slash, they're mainly used to divide. There are many different armors that are very effective against slashing. Very few are effective against piercing attacks. The word of God, there's nothing effective against its penetrating thrust. The word reveals... It divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is the light that reveals, it cuts through all the lies and deceit we are so prone to believe. Jesus is the word of God as described in the Gospel of John chapter 1. In the same Gospel it says that he is also the light, and that men hate the light and love the darkness because the deeds they do are evil. People may be looking for something beyond themselves. We call it the God-shaped hole, but we see time... Time and time again, they are looking for anything besides God. When we impress about the genetic diversity of this world, Richard Dawkins, the famous zoologist, when he was impressed on this, he would say, well, maybe aliens came and then seeded the earth with life. So, you're like, anything but God, right? Even aliens. It's like, you know, uh, you know, the Klingons came over here, and they're like, you know, eating too much and, uh, and, and it gets everywhere, and that's how life on earth started. You're willing to believe that, but not a God created this world. The word of God, it reveals, it penetrates, it gets through all the lies and deceit. Men want a safe and tame line. They do not want a good one. That's a reference from C.S. Lewis. The character of Aslan's a lion. They always ask him, is he safe? Is he tame? He's not a tame lion, but he is good. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Let's look at what the scripture does here. It teaches, it brings reproof, correction, and training. All these things are not pleasant at the time. In each we have to divide from what, what, we, what we once believed into what we need to believe. Let's look at each one real quickly. Teaching. Um, I wasn't so much into sports when I was in high school, but I was in track. And I remember our track coach always stressed on being teachable, being coachable. He always told us uncoachable teenagers become uncoachable adults. And you'll never progress to where you need to be unless you're teachable, unless you're coachable. I mean, that becomes very hard because you're... It becomes very hard because you want because it takes a lot of humility to say, I don't know, I was wrong. You can decide to stay where you're at and believe that crocodiles are so angry because they have all those teeth and no toothbrush. Or you can actually believe it's because of an enlarged Abdul Ablangada. When it comes to being taught God's word, many of us at many times, myself included, become uncoachable. We just think, I I remember when, um, in another church, I was doing a class on evangelism. And I, and I was going through the congregation, and I saw people, hey, we got this new class. I hope to see you on, on Wednesday night. And they'd say, oh, I already know all that stuff. And my question was, so who did you talk to this week about Jesus? Oh, nobody? But I thought you knew everything about evangelism. I didn't realize this. I run into this a lot as a pastor. I run into this a lot being a pastor, believing that I just already know everything. In fact, let's say if you read, if you are consistently reading your Bible, and you don't come to something you disagree with, at least in the flesh, once a year, you're not really reading it. You're just looking at the words on the page and going, mm, that's kind of nice. To actually bring it into you, to allow it to teach you, to break through what you used to believe to what God's real truth is, to allow the sword to penetrate into the bone and marrow to divide soul and spirit. It takes humility. It also reproofs. The word is um, elanchos. In the language it was originally written in, it means evidence, demonstration, proof, convincing argument. I had to actually look this up because, um, to, be, to be honest, I didn't know what the word reproof meant in English. So I was like, well, I better, instead of looking through an English dictionary, I was like, I'm just going to look at the actual word in the text. It means to give evidence. You know, one thing I, I always appreciated, whether you like him or you don't like him, I always liked when John MacArthur was on Larry King Live. And whatever the conversation was, he'd always bring it back to the Bible. He wouldn't say, I think. He'd say, this is what the Bible says. That's using the word for reproof. That's using the word for your evidence. Amen. Of course, the, the objection to this, that unless the person also believes the Bible is the word of God, it doesn't do anything. I completely disagree. It does. It stirs people up. In fact, I was watching a little video. Deepak Chopra, he's a, he's a spiritualist, and he always has this calm attitude. And John MacArthur is talking about, unless you know Jesus Christ, unless he knows you, you're going to hell. He started getting angry. But I thought you didn't believe in any of that stuff. What do you care? You know, somebody was a, I don't know, a Tolkienist. And they're like, unless you believe in Aragorn, you are going to burn in, uh, you know, I don't know, um, uh, Mordor. Yeah, you'd laugh, right? That's ridiculous. And they could say it all they want. I'd laugh at them more. I wouldn't even think they were serious. All these people who say our, our Bible is just a book of fairy tales get awfully excited and angry when they hear these fairy tales. They know it's reproof. They know it is evidence. 
They know it says, no matter what they want to say, he created them male and female. It says, thou shalt not lie. Not even if you think you're protecting somebody else from their own choices. Thou shalt not kill, including the unborn. Have any other gods before me, including politics and my own little pet causes? Everybody has an opinion. Everybody has an opinion, but the Bible has truth. Amen. It provides correction. I don't know about you, but I don't like being corrected. I want to always be correct, because when somebody corrects me, it gets me a little upset, because I don't want to be wrong. And I certainly don't want to admit that I'm wrong, but I need, need, and you need, need correction. Because you are not perfect, and neither am I. I need to look into God's Word and actually be corrected time to time. It's that where I believe I'm perfect in thought, word, and deed. And we know that's not right. There is only one person who that is true about, and he is at the right hand of the Father. It also trains us in righteousness. Being trained in righteousness, that's our sanctification. That is us becoming more like Christ. It reminds me of the story about Michelangelo. Michelangelo, um, and whether or not this story actually happened, or if it's one of those legends that happened around somebody, um, is up to you. It's not up to you, it's what it might be. You still know. Somebody asked Michelangelo one time, how do you take this big block of marble and make such a beautiful horse out of it? Michelangelo said, I don't know what you're talking about, dude, I'm just here for some pizza. Oh, wrong Michelangelo. (laughs) He said... He just takes away anything that doesn't look like a horse. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is of the Spirit. This happens. It's another function of the sword. It penetrates and it carves. It cuts away everything that's not Christ. You know, you can take metaphors too far. In fact, I was hearing somebody say that, like, you have to watch where you're swinging your Bible because you might cut somebody. Like, that's taking the metaphor too far because we want to cut people. Yes. I want to be cut by the Bible. Don't take that out of context. Um, (laughs) I need it to penetrate. And if you don't think you need it, you're in trouble. Here's the third thing the Word of God does. It judges. It judges. I know that was going to happen. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> it judges. When I was going to high school, I saw this sticker everywhere, this bumper sticker. People put it on their guitar cases. It said, only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. And I remember every time I saw it, I mean, I, I winced. I physically winced. Because only God will judge you. Only God will judge you. Other people who look down at their noses at you, that's nothing compared to the judgment of God. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. One reason scripture comes under attack is that it does judge. This morning, Sunday school, we were talking about that. Jesus says, do not judge. We have other parts in scripture that says, judge rightly. You're going to judge the angels should you not judge simple matters amongst yourself. We wonder, how does that all work? Well, Jesus says, by the same measure you judge somebody else, you will be judged. 
Whether you like it or not, you'll be judged by this right here. You don't need to judge anybody else because this already judges. Amen. We just stand where, where, where this is at. Because it's true whether or not we like it. It says what it says no matter what we think or what we suppose. This is God's word. And it judges. The believer welcomes it because it's by the, the judging of the scripture of my thought and intentions that I realized I was a sinner and I needed a savior. Amen. The scripture judges. It tells us the origin of sin. Now, looking at somebody, they do an action you can suppose. You can make references, inferences, all these things about why they do it. The Bible tells us why somebody does something. Why does someone sin? Well, formally, it's because we hated God. Men love darkness and they hate the light because their deeds are evil. John 3.20 Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. That's a hard one to come at, people. That's not super sensitive. That's not going to get a lot of people signing up for clubs, right? And you tell them, you know what? why do you sin? Because you hate God. You are a God-hater in your mind. That's what the scripture says. No wonder the scripture comes under so much attack. Or how about this? There is no one who does good, no, not one, including Gandhi, Mother Teresa, every person you see in scripture besides Jesus Christ himself. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So even the good I do is a filthy rag to God? Before I knew him, that's exactly what it was. Because the Holy Spirit had sanctified my actions and my intentions. It judges my thoughts and my intentions. One verse um, uh, our verse says that the word of God judges our thoughts and intentions. Intentions. So what does it say about mankind's thoughts and intentions? Well, Genesis 6-5 says something about our thoughts and intentions. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. This is before the flood. So, don't worry, it's not like you're the same race as them or something like that, because if you were, you'd be in a lot of trouble. Because nothing has changed, we are still fallen, fallen species. There's, there's philosophy that goes around that man at the center, that people at their center are just good. And scripture stands in stark contrast to this. Every thought of every intention, oh, they're good intention, no, 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 they're not. Oh, well, they have, they have good fruit. Well, if they don't know Christ, then they have no fruit. A sword, of the, it is the sword of the Spirit, it is not the pom-poms of the Holy Spirit. Many don't want the Bible to be a sword of the Spirit, they want it to be a collection of nice sayings and encouragement, and they will skip over anything they consider negative. They, they don't want a sword, they want pom-poms. They want to be just encouragers, just people who cheer on. Well, you know something, somebody who cheers on somebody in sin, it's like somebody telling, it's like somebody who knows there's a hole in front of somebody else and telling them, go ahead and run for it. It's cruel. It's not loving. It's mean. It's terrible to know somebody is on the road to destruction and to cheer them on because you don't want to offend them. People don't want it to be a sword of the Spirit. They want pom-poms of the Spirit. How do you use the Bible as the sword? 
I remember in the movie Zorro, Antonio Banderas' uh, character said, I already know how to use a sword. The pointy end goes into the guy. <laughs> how do you properly wield the sword in the spirit? You do it by correctly dividing the word of truth. In order that we may first, in, in, to do that, we need to first read it, study it, apply it. Do you consciously do this? I, I know that very things are very popular, and I, I do support reading your Bible and whole year programs. But I get a little worried, because if I don't see a change in somebody, are they really reading the scripture? I grew up with people who abandoned the faith after memorizing entire books of the scripture. Remember how I talked about, it's not one thing. We don't get to pick and choose the armor of God. We need it all. Amen. The sword was kind of useless without the shield. The shield of faith is useless without the sword of the Spirit, and the sword of the Spirit is useless without faith. It's impossible to please God without faith. How do we use the sword the way it's meant to be used? We dive into the Scripture. We realize in the Scripture are the very words of God. Do not confuse knowing about the Lord, though, with knowing the Lord. If it is not prompting you to be tender, to have affection towards the Lord, something is missing. So, in summary, how has the word how has the word this week been living and active to you? What does it need to penetrate? Are you letting it judge you? Worship team, if you come up at this time. There's a story about Alexander the Great. He's one of the greatest military generals who ever lived. He conquered almost the entire known world with his vast army. One night. During a campaign, he couldn't sleep and left his tent to walk around the campgrounds. As he was walking, he came across a soldier asleep on guard duty. A serious offense, the penalty for falling asleep on guard duty was, in some cases, instant death. Alexander comes by the sleeping, the sleeping soldier. It was a very serious offense because if they were to be attacked, they have nobody to sound the alarm. Wakes him up. And he, and he asked him, do you know what happens when you fall asleep on guard duty? And he's like, yeah, yeah. He asked him what his name was. The man said, Alexander. Alexander the Great said, what's your name? He says, Alexander. He asked him a third time, what is your name, young man? He says, Alexander. He says, well, then either change your name or change your conduct. <laughs> Amen. One of the uses of the scripture is to be the watchman. To be the one on watch. As you see the danger approaching, you scream out, so many in our culture are not. They are falling asleep on the watch. Being a Christian means so much more than I've got a ticket out of hell. It means I'm part of God's army. I'm part of God's family. And as your brother in Christ, if I see you strain, I come to you, and I come to you with the word, not my own opinion. I try to bring you back into the fold. I try to warn you. There's a fear that in America, the salt is losing its saltiness. Those who should be the those who should be the heralds are falling asleep. I think, unfortunately, we sat a lot this last year. I pray that I pray that God would have mercy and bring revival to America. It needs to start in the churches, and it needs to start by raising our sword together. By taking up the armor of God and making our stand against the devil's schemes. 
In your life, you need to think, how do I need to do this practically? What part of the armor have I been neglecting that I need to put on because I need all of it, I don't need any of it? How do I need to use the Word of God this week? How do I need to look into the Word of God so that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating to the bones and marrow, soul and spirit? How have I been ignoring things that I know that I should be doing? Whether that means that God has God has been pressing on your heart that you need to do something here at the church, or maybe you need to witness, or maybe you have a sin that you still are flirting with. Cut it out before it cuts you out. Worship team's going to lead us in a final song. We'll be ending in our blessing. This isn't so much a sermon as it is a call to arms. You're watching this online, you're here today. I'm calling you to take up arms with me and make our stand against the devil in this evil day. I don't know what the future holds, but I know this God has called us to stand, so we should stand. Join with me as we do this. Will you please stand as we worship our God and King?